Well, if you're not already there, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And I simply want to speak to you tonight about pursuing Christ. I want you to think about those two words, pursuing Christ. If someone was to ask you how much effort you're, you're putting forth today, how much effort are you putting forth in your pursuit of Jesus and that level was on a scale of 1 to 10. You know, if you go to the emergency room, they ask you that really stupid question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is your pain, right? And they, if you're a kid, they give you the little thing with the smiley face, you know, all the way. Well, I mean, I guess they're trying to figure out, you know, okay, give, give me some gauge as to how bad, uh, how bad you're, you're hurting. Well, apply that gauge to your effort, to your pursuit of Christ. And, and, and more particular, or in particular, not just your pursuit of Him as a person, but your pursuit of Christ-likeness. Assimilating the ways of Christ, the attitude of, of Christ, the, the passages of Scripture that, that you're to follow as a, as a believer. I found myself asking... That, that question about pursuit, about is the picture of pressing forward, is the picture of, of not laying back and allowing just whatever to happen to happen, not just passive sanctification, but active, pressing forward, pressing up against the, the pressure that comes from the world, the flesh, and the, and, and the devil charging toward the toward the goal. And I found myself asking that that question. And and I and I've come to the stark realization. It's not a new revelation to me, but something that I'm continually reminded of in my Christian life that 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 it's not a, a one and done type of thing. Um, it's a continual process where where I realize that I'm not putting forth the, the strenuous effort that I need to to press into my, the work that I do as far as sanctification. Now, we know the Lord is the one that changes us. He's the one that transforms us into new creatures. He's the one, His Spirit bears the fruit. You don't see a tomato plant sitting out there struggling as hard as it can, striving to pop out a tomato. A tomato plant produces tomatoes because that's what a tomato plant does. But we have effort in sanctification. God bears the fruit, but, but He tells us to press in, to pursue. And that's something that you continually have to renew your, 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 your vigor toward. And, and I was most intrigued by the passage... In looking at Jacob, about how old Jacob was when God asked him to move to Egypt. Did you think about that? I mean, Jacob is so old that he has to ride there on a cart. And this is, this is not an easy thing. I mean, God asked Jacob in the twilight years of his life, where he's close to death. I mean, he says... Okay, I believe you. I'm going to Egypt to see my son Joseph before I die. I mean, this is a senior saint if there ever was one. And God takes him on a new 
journey of faith. I mean, this is nothing he's ever done before. As a matter of fact, it's going to test everything that he's believed or has been taught about the promise of God. He's leaving the promised land to Egypt. And he has to trust God all over again. Jacob was an old man, and it was encouraging and convicting to realize that faith has no expiration date. Jacob's journey to Egypt reminds us we never get to the age where we no longer have to trust God. Amen, Woody? We never get to the age where we no longer have lessons to learn. One commentator put it this way, Serving God is not a young man's game. Where senior saints sit on the sidelines reminiscing about the good old days. It's a full participation sport where as long as there's blood coursing through our veins and air in our lungs, we must stand at the ready. That's good. And if faith has no expiration date, pursuing God doesn't either. You will fight the flesh. You will fight the battle to assimilate Christ-likeness in your life up until the very last breath that you take. The battles that you faced as a young man will be there as an older man. And you may have to relearn some of the lessons that you learned as a young man or, or young woman. And so tonight, I want to take you to the book of Colossians in chapter 3 and exhort you to keep on pursuing Christ-likeness. We're going to look in particular to, to Colossians 3, verses 5 through 14, but I want to give you some background before, before we get there. Because chapter 3 begins a new section in the book of Colossians, and Paul, in his typical fashion, lays out the book the same way that he does just about every other letter. He starts with the doctrinal, and then he goes to the practical. Starts with the theological, the doctrinal teaching, and then says, therefore, on that basis. Now, he inserts something in Colossians that is that's a little bit different. In chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul talks about, here's the theological basis for what I have to say. You'll recall in Colossians 1, the great passages about the gospel. Think of Ephesians. If you've been in Grace Walk, as they recently got out of Ephesians, chapter 1 of Colossians, Ephesians, parallel books all about salvation, the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the prototokos. He is the firstborn. He is preeminent. And you get to chapter 2, and Paul turns from the doctrinal to the polemical. He begins to argue about what's not true, what you shouldn't listen to, what you should not be doing, what you should be aware of, and he starts dealing with the Colossian heresy. And turn back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. I'll show you the the let no one passages, or see that no one takes you captive. He, in verse 4, he says, so that no one del- will delude you with persuasive arguments. Verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of, of men. And verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. He says, basically, let no one take you captive. 
what I'm telling you is true, and somebody's coming along telling you the opposite, let no one take you captive to that false teaching through slick talking. It's verse 4. Let no one take you, let no one capture you through base human philosophies. And then in verse 16, let no one derail you from, from the engine of your Christianity through dead end detours, through legalism and mysticism and asceticism. After laying that foundation, then he turns to the, to the practical in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things which are above. He just got done talking about legalism, mysticism, and asceticism, the, the, the things that have the appearance of wisdom like self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body which have no value against fleshly indulgences. These earthly things, these worldly religious practices, these beating your body into subjections, fastings, um, you know, do this, don't do that, new moons, all of those things, they, they seem to be spiritual, but they have no power whatsoever to control the flesh that rises up in your heart. So what does have the power? Where is your engine? Where is your weapon? It's Christ. It's what He has done. It's... It's your position in Him. And that's where he starts in Colossians chapter 3. He spends the rest of the book hammering this out, what it means to be raised up with, with Christ. And he gives us this exhortation from our position in Christ, verses 1 through 4. And then he comes to, comes to our passage. I'm going to bring the whole outline up for you for you now. Um, well, uh, all of it won't fit on one screen, so we'll start here and then we'll go to the second one. They're giving me signals back there. One, two, two slides you have tonight. So there's an exhortation to pursue Christ likeness. This is the outline of of the verses one through fourteen. He starts here in verses 1 through 4. Just leave that up there, guys. Verses 1 through 4, he talks about our heavenly footing, which is in Christ. And then he moves to our earthly position following salvation. He basically is going to tell us in verses 1 through 4, we have a position in Christ. We have a heavenly footing. It's a spiritual position. It's based on what Jesus has already accomplished. But you and I both know that, that we're living on the earth right now. So we have an earthly position, and that's where the battle rages. And so he's going to give us some commands there. Well, let's look at our heavenly footing in Christ. Verses 1 through 4, it says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things that are on the earth. It's going to contrast here between the heavenly and the earthly, the, the spiritual and the natural. Why do you set your, things, set your mind on things above and on things of the earth? Verse 3, for you've died. Because you've died, you've been associated with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And, and when Christ our life is revealed, when He returns, you will also be revealed with Him in, in glory. Verse 1, he says, since you've been raised up, literally, it means that you and I have been co-resurrected with Christ. 
A believer has been spiritually united with Christ. And through that union, you and I have entered into the death and the resurrection of our Lord. And that happened at the moment of of salvation. Paul talks about this quite a bit. That means that your sin and its consequence has already been dealt with. Okay? You have this spiritual truth. You have been baptized into Christ. You have been placed into Christ. You're in spiritual union with Christ. That's, that's the theological part. So what practically, what does that mean? It means that the, the death that, that you would have had to die, the second death, the spiritual death, when you stood before God, what you owed for your sin has already been taken care of because Christ has already died. And in addition to that, not only has Christ already died for you, Christ has also been rose from, uh, resurrected from the dead. He rose from the dead. So you have new life in Him. Your sin and its consequences have already been dealt with on the cross in the death of Christ. Here's where the power is. The power is not in asceticism, deny, self-denial. It's not in legalism, rules, and it's not in mysticism, some super spiritual knowledge. The power is in what Jesus has accomplished and realizing that and seeing that. And he says, you have a heavenly footing. Your sin and its consequences have been dealt with on the cross in the death of Christ. And as Jesus died for you, that death was credited to your record of what you owed. And on the flip side, that means in the resurrection, your old pre-salvation died and you now have a new life to live. And Paul says, don't turn back to earthly means then to battle your flesh. Look to Christ and set your mind on the gospel. That's the things above. And there's more to come. In verse 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, you also will be, re- will be revealed with Him on, on glory. Not only has your past life died, not only have you been raised to spiritual life now, but you have eternal life. You have everlasting life to look forward to. And that's going to come at the revelation of Christ whenever He returns. So that's the heavenly position. That's the foundation. And now He turns to, to your earthly living. So what's happened spiritually in your salvation? So what's going on on the earth? What's going on in daily life where the rubber meets the road? Look at verse 5. Therefore, because of what I just told you, Paul says... Consider the members, or put to death the members, mortify the members of your earthly body. Seek the things above. Seek the things at the right hand of God. Set your mind on heavenly things. And now he's talking about earthly things, the members of your earthly body. While you have a heavenly footing, you also have an earthly position. And that's where we do battle. And he gives three commands. There's a command to put to death what belongs to the earthly nature. That's what you see there in verses 5 through 7. He lists the members. In verse 5, he tells us that those members attract the wrath of God. In verse 6, and he said those members are past tense. They're part of the old life. He gives a command to lay aside the old self. In verses 8 through 11, 
put off the old deeds, put on the new man, and then the third command is to put on the deeds of of Christ in verses 12 through 14. We're going to sail through this, so don't be overwhelmed by the outline. Let's look at this first command, a command to put to death what belongs to our earthly nature, found in verse 5. Put to death or mortify the members of your earthly body. He tells us while we're spiritually positioned in heaven, we're still subject to the pull of this world and the influence of our unredeemed flesh. He basically says here that believers are... They're like a boat that has sit in the water for a really, really long time. Have you ever, if you go to Leesville Lake or if you go to Smith Mountain Lake or you go somewhere else, a lot of people that have boats and that have the, um, the docks will, will have a lift that will pull their boat up out of the water. And if you have to pull your boat out of the water and you don't have one of those, typically you have to get the bottom of your boat cleaned. He says that you're a new boat sitting in the water of the earth. And you are to rid yourself of those hellish barnacles, if you will, that are still attached to the underbelly of the, of the boat. That which remains from the former life. As long as you live here, although you're longing for heaven, you're going to war against those earthly members. And Jesus says, take no mercy on them. The word... Mortify is a is a it's an action to be taken. It's a it's an imperative. It's not an option. It's a command. He says, keep seeking, keep setting your mind, and then put to death. You died. Your members also need to die. And the phrase "your members" simply means the deeds or the activities that that comes from. From you. Your arm is a member. Your tongue is a member. It's just the deeds that, that come from those things. Uh, it's a figure of speech. It's a metonymy. Deeds of the earthly nature that are associated with earth. It's Since earth is not a believer's home, and since we have died with Christ and raised with Christ, we're no longer to live in these deeds either. We're to mortify them. It's a very strong word. It it means to slay utterly. I mean, this is God not playing around. It it has the idea of pressing in. It has the idea of pursuing. It it doesn't mean, you know, to get your little toenail clippers out or your little snippers. Like um, you've seen the the Chinese uh, or Japanese, I should say, bonsai trees. You know, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, get out your chainsaw. Cut it down. Lay an axe to the root is the idea of this word. Both the meaning of the word and the force of the tense means deliberate, painful action that requires personal determination. And if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know what I mean by personal determination. Just when you think that you have overtaken, just when you think that you have laid the axe to the root of some besetting sin... You turn your back and three days later, a week later, a month later, you see another shoot coming up. We cut a tree down 
uh, beside the house that uh, we lived at and over in uh, at Hooper. It was a it was a cherry tree and and they just cut it down and they covered it up with mulch. And the very next year, I mean, you had the little suckers coming up everywhere. The roots were never were never taken care of, and we had to go back out and and cut those cut those down. Alexander McLaren said, this idea is like a man who while working at a machine gets his fingers drawn between rollers or caught in the belting. In another minute and he will be flattened into a shapeless bloody mass. And he catches up an axe lying by and with his own arm he hacks off his hand at the wrist. It's not easy or pleasant, but it's the only alternative to a horrible death. That's the idea of this word. That's pretty graphic, pretty disgusting. And yet God uses a word here that says this is not playing around. You must kill these things. We're, as one old preacher said, we're to kill them dead. <laughs> and then he lists the members. So what are we to... What are we to do that to? What are we to do that with? What are these actions and interdispositions? He says immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Pornia or fornication is the first one. It's, it's any activity outside of marriage, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, anything that, that would be immoral. Immorality. You think that the world's trying to redefine what that means today? Just read in the USA Today on the weekend edition where they've come up with a new reality show um, where the two individuals that are on there are completely unclothed. And it's a reality show where they, they date without any clothes on. Coming to A&E or one of those type of programs. Clearly would fall into that category. And while you would never go on a dating show like that, you do have, because of the pull of the earth and because of the, the unredeemed flesh, you do have things that creep up in this area. And he says, lay root to it, kill it. Second word is uncleanness. It means anything unclean or filthy. It goes beyond filthy acts, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The third word is inordinate affection or passion. Evil desire, those two words go together. Passion refers to physical affection that gets set loose in the body. It's the same word that Paul uses of homosexuality in Romans 1, degrading passions. It's this burning in inside and then evil desire is the is the other side of the coin in order that affections refers to physical passion evil desire or concupiscence as the King James says refers to that mental longing that, that goes along with it the last word is covetousness which is Idolatry, or which amounts to idolatry. Covetousness comes from a word meaning more and to have. There's two words that go together. 
to have more, to have more of anything that unseats God. And after giving the list, he, he tells us why we should be killing them. Look at verse 6. For it's because of these things. You mean you have to hack these things, you have to lay the axe to the root. Because of these things, it's the, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Now, you're not sons of disobedience. You were sons of disobedience. You were children of wrath. You're no longer sons of disobedience. So this is the wrath of God that's coming upon the earth. And, and that wrath is coming because they practice these things. Because they attract, these members attract the wrath of God. Paul says, kill them because they're a steeple in the midst of a lightning storm of the wrath of God. They attract the wrath of God like a, like a magnet does iron. Paul says, continuing in these sins would be like standing on a golf course in a lightning storm, holding an nine iron up in the air, just walking around. You were by nature children of wrath. The wrath of God abided upon you. It was, it was being stored up against the day. It had your number. It was attracted to you. you. No way to get away from it. It would find you. It was your, your heart, your life was the iron and, and the wrath of God was like a magnet and whenever God would release that one day at the end, it would, it would come. But, but that's, that's not you any, anymore. You've been made children of righteousness. So put away those things which stir up God's displeasure. You don't want to participate any longer in the deeds that, that sinners will be damned for. Now, the wrath of God is one of His many attributes. It's like His omniscience and His faithfulness and His love. And his... The wrath of God is not an attribute that will be applied to us as believers. Praise God. We're not children of wrath. The wrath of God is not... Is not the Lord getting mad and blowing up at sinners. It's not something just like uncontrolled anger. The wrath of God is God's constant, controlled, invariable reaction to sin. It's methodical. It's constant. It's controlled. It's, it's unchangeable. The wrath of God is His eternal destination for all unrighteousness. The wrath of God is God's holiness stirred to action. Stirred to activity against sin. Currently, another attribute of God, the long-suffering of God, is restraining, is holding back His, his wrath. As 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, it's the long-suffering of God that keeps Him from pouring that out. And yet one day, that fierceness, the full wrath of Almighty God will be poured out undiluted. And this verse says these sins attract that. It should also not only motivate you and I to kill these things when they crop up in our life, but also have mercy on other people and share the gospel with them. Because all of those things that are listed there, the homosexuality and the immorality, the impurity and the passion and the evil desire and the greed or the covetousness which is idolatry, they are attracting the wrath of God right now, and it's coming one day. And the only thing that will rescue them is for them to no longer be children of wrath, 
but to be translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. He also says that these, you should put them to death because these members are past tense. Look at verse 7. They attract the wrath of God and, and they're past tense. In them you also once walked. That's past. When you were living in them. When these things marked your life. When, when this is what... When you're unsaved. Once or formally is the thrust here. These things that bring God's wrath you used to do, but no more. Why? What changed? Well, you met the Master. And nothing's been the same. Paul says you, you and I, we used to live our lives characterized by these sins, but now Christ characterizes our, our lives. Do you ever, if you were converted or saved like me at a later age, saved at 24, do you, do you ever get a flashback at times and you think, wow, that just seems like a completely different life? I mean, it's this, it's the reminder of what you, maybe a sin or, or the way that you used to live. And it's just like, it just, wow, I, I'm so thankful that I'm, I'm rescued from that. I'm so thankful that that's, that's not my life anymore. God's changed me. They don't characterize your life anymore. The song says, I'm not returning to sin. I made my vow. There's nothing to go back to. Where are you going to go? Back to sin? The things that you used to do? It's one of the reasons a backslidden Christian is so miserable. Not only are they under God's discipline, but, but he has to return to what he once thought was heaven and now he knows is nothing but mire, husks. This verse says that, that these deeds are like stench, they're like smoke, they're like the smell of the former life without Christ. And so to participate in them would be like that. You, you're to kill these things because they're like the smell left in a morgue after the body is removed. These sins are like the overpowering smell of death that hits you in the face when you first walk into a slaughterhouse. These sins, these, these, these behaviors, these things that come from your life are like the, the musty, smoke-saturated odor that remains after a house fire. It's like the reeking, soured film left in a trash dumpster after it's been emptied. None of those things are pleasant. None of these things that come from the, your members are pleasant. Kill them. It's what you were, but, but not anymore. Well, that's the first command, and why? Look at the second one in, in verse 8. But now also, put these aside. Lay aside the old self. There's another command. Put to death your members and lay aside these things. Verses 8 through, through 11. He gives us another list. Put off old deeds, put on the new man. It's a, it's a list with a different twist. He adds... 
He added to the deeds of the members evil practices of the old self. And, and he gives the list here. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive, spe- abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices. These are evil practices that, that come from the old self that's, that's dead. It's, the old man is dead. He's gone. And you've put on a new self who's being renewed in a true knowledge according to the image of the creative. You're, you're changed. You're a new creature. You're not who you were. We're to kill the deeds of the earthly nature. We're also to strip off the the contaminated clothing of the old self. So the the first metaphor he gives is is kill, mortify, put to death. And now he talks about taking off the old deeds like a garment and putting on a new garment, Putting putting on the garment of Christ. That's what he's saying here. Lay them all aside. Lay them aside like a filthy garment. And, and then in, in verse 10, and you put on a new self, you put on a new garment, which is being renewed in the, in the knowledge of, of Christ. We're not only the executioner of these deeds, we're, we're also figuratively responsible for, for our proper wardrobe. The flesh is a horrible fashion designer. Okay? Tracy's father was a diesel mechanic in the coal mines, and whenever we first started seeing each other, I was a teenage boy, 16, and he would come home, I'd see him coming home, and he, I mean, he was filthy, dirty. I mean, clothes, grease, just fingers, you know, he typically wore a denim shirt that was, that had the, um, not buttons, but what do you call them? Snaps and denim pants. And I mean, it would just be, there would be so much coal dust and oil and grease and soil that it was just, I mean, it was just meshed into the fabric. And whenever he would come in, he would lay them aside and Tracy's mother would, would wash them. And of course, she would never wash them with, you know, with anything else. He would never even think of coming in the house and sitting on the couch and hanging around in those clothes all evening and, you know, getting everything dirty. He certainly wouldn't, wouldn't wear them to a wedding or a formal dinner or something like that. It, it would be, it would be unfitting. Even more unfitting is for a believer to adorn the dirty garment that they used to used to mark their life with their Christ cleansed lives. You're clean. You don't get out of the shower unless and put on filthy, dirty clothes unless you're Jared. You've been you've been clean. You've been cleansed. If you go over to Israel or any other place, you you see the the mikvahs that are there, the ceremonial washings, and they'll they'll have you know this this bath that you go down in, and there'll be a set of steps that that you'll walk down one side, and you'll take your clothes off, go down in one side, and and wash, and then come back out the other side and put on a brand new garment. You don't put back on what you took off. You're 
I mean, the Jews took that to a, to an amazing extreme. If they were carrying their sacrifice after they they had already been ceremonial ceremonially cleansed, if you go over to the temple, there's mikvahs everywhere on the way up to the temple in Jerusalem. That where the where the temple sat. And if they touched anybody, they have to run and find one. So there's there are mikvahs all over the place. If they accidentally bump into people, surely wouldn't put on the old clothing that they took off. Nor should we put on the old deeds of of the flesh. The command is, is to put on the new man. You put on the new man. It's a something that's already happened in verse ten and and have put on the new self. This is a statement. You're to kill the earthly members. You're to take off the old filthy garment of the flesh. You're to, to kill the members because they, these deeds attract the wrath of God and they were who you used to be. They used to mark your life no longer. And you're to take off these, these old deeds like a, like a filthy garment because you have a new self. This is a statement in verse 10. You've put on a new self. This new self is being renewed. It's being changed. Okay, you've been made a new creature in Christ Jesus. But God's not done with you, right? You're glad about that. Aren't you glad that God's not finished with you? I mean, if He were done right now, it would be a, it would be a bad thing. At least that's the way it would be in my life. I'm glad He's not done with me. And, and so what does that mean? I'm being renewed according to a true knowledge into the image of the One who created Him. I am, you are predetermined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You have been changed spiritually. You've been raised from death to life. You're now a new creature in Christ Jesus. And you are growing up into a mature man. What will you be like whenever you grow up? You're going to be like Christ. And that's happening by a renewed knowledge. Your mind is being renewed. It's changing your thinking. It's changing your behaviors. It's a process. It's It's growth. And you're being renewed into the image of the one who created him. And in verse 11, and, and in, this, in this renewal, in this, this change, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and, and in all. We're all being conformed to the same image. And that's, that's Christ. And then lastly, there's a command to put on the deeds of, of Christ. This is the third command. It's a command to kill, a command to lay aside the old self, and a command to put on the deeds of Christ. So what does this renewal look like? What's your part? You have been created. You have been recreated into a new man. You're growing. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. And now he's going to tell you, here's where the rubber meets the road in verse, verse 12. Put on the deeds of Christ. So, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, rooted in your salvation, sanctified, set apart from everyone else and everything else, holy, you're not a child of wrath. You've been set apart in God's redeeming love. You're beloved by Him. You're special, His special possession. Because of all of that, doesn't that motivate you? What should it motivate 
you to do. Put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And there's our topic from this morning. Whoever has complained against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the, which is the, the glue that holds everything together, the perfect bond of, of unity. You do all those things out of love for God, and, and that love for God motivates you to love others. It's a command to put on the, the deeds of, of Christ. So it gives us something to lay aside and something to pursue. You've been changed. I've been changed. I'm being changed. You're being changed. You're being conformed. Positionally, you died in Christ and so you no longer will stand in judgment. There's no condemnation. The, the, the death is, is complete. The penalty is paid. You've been raised to new life. You have new life in, in Christ. And yet we live on the earth. And until that moment whenever His life is revealed, the glory of Christ, until the coming of Christ, we live on the earth. And what do we do while we're on the earth? We kill what crops up from the unredeemed flesh. and We lay aside the old deeds and we put on the deeds of, of Christ. I'll let you go through your quiet time and look up every one of those words. I would, I would take some time and just read verses 12 through 14 and look at that list. What does a heart of compassion look like in your life? What does kindness look like toward your spouse? What does humility look like toward your boss, toward your children, toward other church members? What does gentleness look like when, when dealing with, with someone weaker? What does patience look like whenever enduring hardship? What does bearing with one another look like when that person just so gets on your nerves? What does forgiving each other Anyone who even has a complaint, not even a big sin, but just a complaint, and you do that on the same level that the Lord forgave you, so also should you. What does that look like? And then do you have love coursing through your heart and coming out in your life? Because that's what will hold all of that garment together. Think of that last part about Love being the bond. Think of it this way. All of, those, all of those deeds that are listed there, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, think of those as like, like threads in a garment. And, and love is, is what holds all of those, holds the whole garment together. Um, you need that to, to hold it all in place. And all of that comes from meditating on the gospel and being renewed in it. It's a battle, isn't it? It takes effort. So, I'm exhorting you tonight. Press in. Maybe it's just a reminder. Maybe it's an encouragement. Maybe it's a wake-up call. But it's a continual thing that we have to fight and face. But rest assured of this. One day, 
Because verse 4 says, When Christ who is our life is revealed, one day Jesus is coming. And for those who don't know Christ, the magnet is coming for the iron. The wrath will be attracted to the sons of disobedience. But you, it will be the glory of Christ. You'll see Jesus face to face. You'll be with Him. What a day that will be. And that motivates me to fight. And fight on. Don't be like our current military position in Iraq and Afghanistan. Don't take all the troops out of the battle because the terrorists are still there, right? Fight. And the troops are going to have to be there until the day in which you meet Jesus.